1958, Pat O'Day first hit the radio airwaves in the Pacific Northwest. After nearly 60 years as a disc jockey, radio station manager, and concert promoter, Pat O'Day has cemented his legacy in the entertainment industry, here locally and abroad. In fact, Pat's picture hangs in the disc jockey exhibit as a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It wouldn't be a conversation with Pat O'Day without a little rock and roll. He shares stories of a young Jimi Hendrix, Elvis's love of White Castle burgers, and Led Zeppelin continually trashing Seattle's famous Edgewater Hotel. In this episode, we also talk to Pat about one of Seattle's long-standing traditions, Seafair. Pat served as a play-by-play voice for Seafair's hydroplane races for roughly 40 years. Back before Seattle boasted any professional sports teams, the hydroplane drivers were the sports icons that everyone admired. Seafair was a big deal back then, and Pat's rock and roll credentials took it to the next level. Today, many of Seattle's new residents look at Seafair simply as a weekend for bad traffic. But Pat's stories serve to protect the rich history of Seafair and explore its place in Seattle's future. Pat O'Day has seen it all in Seattle from his perch behind the microphone. Hearing his perspective of Seattle's past helps us understand the present and look forward to our city's future. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. Well, we are thrilled to be able to speak with Seattle radio and entertainment legend Pat O'Day uh, on this episode. So, Pat, for over 50 years, your voice has been present in the Seattle area on the radio through being a disc jockey or through commercials. Is that fair to say, over 50 years? Well, let's see. It started in 1958. So, 58 to... Uh, <laughs> Until yeah, math. Yeah, there you go. We're done. Yeah, it's it's uh, easy math. It's yeah. called 60 years. Yeah. About. Yeah. Okay. So, by way of introduction, I thought we could play a little game of true or false. Are you up All for right. that? So, true or false... You are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. True. I uh, was inducted into the radio division along with uh, Casey Kasem and Bruce Hayes from New York and Red Robinson from Vancouver. And uh, well, as a matter of fact, Red and I are the only guys north of Los Angeles in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame radio guys. But yeah, that's true. Okay. You've had influence on the music careers of legends like... Elvis Presley and Jimi Hendrix, true or false? Um, more so in the case of Jimi, uh, Elvis later on handling his tours, yes. Okay. And what did you do for Jimi? Jimi and I, listen, this is strange. I had a dance called the Spanish Castle, and it was out on the old Highway 99 at Midway, where you turned to go down to Des Moines, and... Uh, I would have teenage dances every Friday night out there. It was a big deal in the early 60s and uh, because there was no concert business then. So the major acts, wanting exposure and earn money for the band, they would do little gigs, you know. And uh, I could hire Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Jan and Dean for 30 days at a time, wow. running them to all of my dances. And, or, well, anyway... Uh, at the Spanish Castle, in those days, bands had tiny little amps, little Gibsons and Sun amplifiers, and and they would overdrive them with their guitars because none of the facilities had good PA systems. Mm-hmm. So if their instrument was going to be heard, 
It had to come entirely from the little lamp. And they would overdrive them, and they would blow. Now, when it blew the first time, you took the fuse out, and you took the lead wrapper off a chewing a stick of chewing gum, wrapped it around the fuse, and put it back in. Nice. But when it blew the second time, you were Annie Annie over for the night. So that and that would be a disaster for the bands because you know acoustical rock guitar. No. So uh, one night uh, a kid came up to me, and he said, "You know, if if they blow the ramps and you ever need another amplifier." He says, I've got uh, a big amp in my car, and he said, you can use my amp if I can stand on the back of the stage and play with him. He says, don't worry, I know every lick that the wailers and the static had that they all do. So I kind of said, oh, okay, I didn't make a big note of it. But about two weeks later, three weeks later, it was Tiny Tony and the statics that were on the stage, blew the amp, uh, and uh, the kid came up and said, would you like to, can, do you want my amp? I said, oh, go get it. So he did, and he stood on the back of the stage and played. Now, now it's years later, and I'm handling all the appearances of Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi and I are sitting in the dressing room in uh, Houston. And Jimi says, Pat, do you remember when we first met? I said, you mean at the attorneys in New York? He said, nope, way before that. I said, tell me, where? He says, do you remember the kid at the Spanish castle that loaned you his amp if the bands broke there? And suddenly I said, oh, my God, because now the face tied in. He was a young, very young guy wow. then and yeah. didn't have long, bushy hair. But uh, I said, oh, my God, that was a humbling moment. Wow. But, okay, uh, so you've been in radio 60-plus years, right? Yes. But, so your your dad was in radio before this, Well, correct? my dad was a, a minister in Tacoma. Okay, okay. And uh, he had a daily program on KMO nice. uh, every morning at 9.15. And then after the Glenn Hardy News, which was a big national newscast at 9 o'clock, no television then, you understand. And then his program was from 9.15 to 9.30. So I would go to the radio station with him. And uh, you know, understand the ministry never appealed to me mm -hmm. uh, for a multitude of reasons that God knows about. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but, Understood. But, uh, but that thing called radio, oh, my goodness, right? Yeah. And the stars of KMO Tacoma were people like Clay Huntington, who was a great play-by-play -play man for years, a guy named Rod Belcher. And uh, he was a Mariners play-by-play -play man going way back when they were the pilots mm -hmm. or was part of the play-by-play. -play. Uh, anyway, they were my heroes, and so I fell in love with radio. Mm -hmm. And I, I fell in love with all those years. There was a guy named Leo Lassen. I don't know if that name rings a bell with you, mm -hmm. but he was the iconic voice of the Seattle Rainiers, loved by the community, and was a great play-by-play -play guy. So I would go up into the bathroom and would uh, do play-by-play -play into the bathtub because that way you get an echo back and you can kind of hear yourself right. and hear your inflection. So I would do baseball and football games for Stadium and Lincoln High School and Tacoma and so on into the bathtub, you mm -hmm. know. And So if you'd ask me by the time I was nine what I was going to be when I grew up, I said, I'm going to be in radio. Wow. Going to be a radio announcer, 
because they didn't. That's what they were called then. They were announcers. Rather than DJ. Rather yeah. than DJ or yeah. personality. Or, yeah. And uh, so I never looked to the right or the left. I uh, went to Olympic College in Bremerton and then went off to Bates Radio in Tacoma at Tacoma Vocational, which at that time was the leading broadcast school in the West, frankly. A lot of the great radio people came out of that school. And uh, then in 1950, well, in 56, I went to work at KVAS in Astoria. Mm -hmm. And four months later, uh, they hired me away from there to go to KLOG in Kelso because they were missing a play-by-play -play announcer uh, for the Kelso Scotties, high school Scotties basketball. And then six months later, uh, a guy named Wally Nelscog, who owned KIXI, a great original Seattle disc jockey that owned a chain of stations, was driving to Portland, and he listened, heard me on the radio on a Saturday afternoon and came in the back door of the radio station and hired me and to go to his station in Yakima. Wow. And then after about a year in Yakima, I was hired to go to KAYO Seattle, which is the station at 1150 now. Okay. And then uh, one year later, uh, KJR uh, decided to go back to rock and roll. Uh, hmm. KJR, you see, there was a thing called the payola investigation. I was front page day after day after day because... Um, there were certain do-gooder senators that decided that rock and roll was successful despite the fact that it was sinful and in bad taste. Rock and roll was successful because of under-the-table payments to these guys called disc jockeys. Oh, yeah, that was the, the only reason Elvis and Little Richard and all these people and Bill Haley and Fats Domino were big was because of under-the-table payments. Yeah, the music wasn't any good. It was oh, just the music's right. not any good. My God, it's <laughs> sinful. It's right. Uh, it's uh, not well orchestrated. It's no. It's terrible, you know. causes the kids to dance funny and grab their crotch and all kind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they conducted, the federal government conducted a giant payola investigation. Dick Clark was found guilty, but uh, he didn't own a radio station. He was just... Uh, uh, but a guy's named Alan Freed and several DJs that had been taking money, uh, they were indicted and in some case imprisoned. And, but Mitch Miller, uh, Mitch Miller had a great orchestra, had been a recording star whose career was going into void because nobody was buying that kind of music. Uh, he announced that rock and roll was dead that Columbia Records, that they had studied it, and rock and roll was dead, and that era is over with. Wow. Well, that was front page of the paper. Rock and roll finally meets its end, right? Because adults were not converting quickly to this new feeling in music. Uh, KJR, at the time, mistakenly believed what they were and went kind of to a soft, middle-of-the-road format of music, and their ratings went in the toilet. And so it was that uh, about this time, KJR decided we better get back on track. I was hired along with uh, some other people, and, uh, and it all began. The rest is history. <clears throat> by, 19, by March of 1960, KJR moved back into number one and was still number one 
when I left as general manager at the end of 1974. That's quite a run. That is a bit of a run. With ratings occasionally as high on my show, as high as 40% of all listening in Pierce, King, and Snohomish County. You know, And, and fortunately, I didn't realize how powerful we were. Mm-hmm. It was just something you do every day. You got a 40 share? How do we get a 45, you know? <laughs> uh, later on, you look back and say, oh, my God. Yeah. But it's probably good that I didn't realize how powerful I was. I'd have probably blown the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And yeah. That's, is that's that 950? That was, that was you yeah. It was called Channel 95. Okay. We had a thing on KJR. Uh, I had a different philosophy on news. We would run newscasts in the morning, and then all stations at that time ran a newscast every hour, five minutes. I eliminated the hourly and called it KJR Instant Information. And the news department realized. It had the full authority to break in at any time. The disc jockey, when they got that signal, the disc jockeys to bring them on. The news department knows the story better be spine-tingling, better be exciting, number one, and don't exceed 60 seconds unless it's really big, okay? Well, that led led the station to just huge ratings mm-hmm. because... We were the leading. Uh, we were the leading news source in surveys. Said with adults, we were the leading news source in Seattle. Because you're breaking stuff thirty yeah. minutes before other oh, stations, and no redundancy, no redundancy. Mm-hmm. Only if there's a new development to the story is it heard again. Period. End of report. <clears throat> I'm driving home from the office. I lived in Newport Shores. You know where that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my kids went to Newport High. I'm driving home and just about to enter the floating bridge tunnel when our newsman comes on. Oh, by the way, we would give away a motorcycle a week for the top news tip of the week or $2,000 cash or something like that. I'm just about to go into the tunnel. The guy says, uh, the Newport High School is on fire. And I pull over real quick. He said, just had a report that the library, it looks like the library of Newport High School is in flames, and uh, if there's another development, we'll let you know, so on. And uh, bing, I say, oh my God, it's my kid's school, right? So I drive across the floating bridge, drive up to turn off Cole Creek Parkway, and go up to the school to look at the fire. I get there, and oh boy, the flames are pouring out, they're coming out of the ceiling by now. It's no fire department. And the, to see the neighbors running around and so on, it's, where's the, well, suddenly I hear the sirens coming, right? The sirens are coming, and the fire trucks pull up, and they get the hoses out, and it was too late to save the library. But but I said to the, one of the guys, I said, where in the hell have you guys been? He's, what do you mean, what have you been? I said, well, how would you, he's, we only got, we, we got the alarm eight minutes ago. And I said, you got the alarm eight minutes ago, but somebody called my radio station 30 minutes ago (laughs) and said there was a fire in the library at Newport High, but the fire department didn't hear about it. Hmm. Arson? Hmm. Interesting. So the next morning I went to... uh, the fire chief in Bellevue, and we went over to the police department. And I showed him the record 
the phone call came in and who had made the call and right. the time of the call and so on. And uh, and uh, they were brought in for questioning. A guy named Pastor Nicky. They were drunk. Mm. Kids had up on the outside of a few six packs of Bud and they decided to win a motorcycle. So they went and chucked a Molotov cocktail through the window and wow. giggled and and wow. then called the station. It's when they saw the flames coming up out of the window, they called the station and reported the fire. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Dumb is as dumb does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they went two of two of them went to prison over that. Yeah, I bet. They went to Monroe. Yeah. I bet. Well, let's shift course to Seafair. Um, we'd love to talk about the event. As we look at it today, so Tyler and I are in our early 30s. We see an event that is, it's still an event in Seattle, um, but a lot of people kind of look at it as the day the Blue the blue Angels fly, the day that traffic is bad, um, and we don't really see much engagement with the hydroplane races like you were talking about earlier. So from kind of from your vantage point as someone that was in it for so long, how have you seen it? What was it like back in the day? Let's start there. What what was the importance level to the city back in? Well, there's a couple the of 60s. factors. Uh, one of them is not the fault of hydroplane racing or seafare, and that is that when the hydroplanes took off, Seattle had no major league sports. Okay? We were minor league from the word go. The Huskies would go to the Rose Bowl about once every 30 years if they were lucky, uh, and Seattle was sports-starved. Along came a boat called the Slow Motion that went to Detroit and set a speed record on Lake Washington and then went to Detroit and won the Gold Cup race in Detroit. Now, you understand that Seattle didn't have a clue what a Gold Cup was, but my God, we have gone to Detroit, the home of the Tigers and the Detroit Pistons and the Detroit Lions, and we have won the Gold Cup. And go. it's coming to Seattle, and Detroit is going to have to come out here and race. And Seattle was so proud. They didn't know what a hydroplane was really about, but my God, we've won something, right? So as a result, you had that first race, nearly a half million people on the shores of Lake Washington. At least that's the number that was quoted. But it was crowded. Uh, and at that time, the course was three miles long, went clear down to Seward Park. So all the way along the shore, the crowds were huge, and the log boom was jammed with boats. That really got it started. On top of that, the sport brought to the table uh, great personalities uh, and it brought another fact. We are an aerodynamic city, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, we are the home of Boeing, which was the primary industry at the time. So here comes an activity that has a boat that Seattle had innovated uh, with Ted Jones and Stan Sayers, a boat that actually flew on top of the water. That's what the slow motion did. Up until that time, the, uh, the hydroplanes plowed through the water absorbing enormous horsepower that way. And Ted Jones had created a boat that flew over the water, only three points touching the water, the tip of each sponson and the propeller. The rear of the boat isn't even in the water. Wow. You know, It's flying. It's an aerodynamic, uh, using the water for its base of reference, if you will. So Seattle could identify with this and loved it. 
And uh, so the Gold Cup came to Seattle and the crowds were there. And now more people in the Northwest get involved in the sport. And pretty soon you got a Miss Burien and a Miss University District and a Seattle Slow Motion and Seattle Five. And you got a Pay and Save and a Thriftway and so on and so on. So... And a lot of Seattle people involved in the sport, from Ole Bardall and the Bardalls to uh, the Thriftway stores, and the drivers become big heroes here. The Ron Mussens and the Bill Muncies and the Myra Slovaks. Myra Slovak, who made national news when he flew an airliner out of Czechoslovakia, which at that time was behind the Iron Curtain. He loaded a plane with passengers and flew into West Germany at about 500 feet off the ground to escape radars and so on. And uh, he was a hero. So he had gotten political asylum in this country and was in Yakima flying crop dusters. And Bill Boeing Jr. was in Yakima and was introduced to him somehow at the airport. And uh, they got to talking about air. To make a long story short, Myra Slovak was moved to Seattle, became Bill Boeing's personal pilot, Oh, wow. And the driver of the unlimited hydroplane. Wow! Well, stuff like that's magic. Yeah, and right? these, but these guys were big stars. Yeah, the huge drivers. stars. Yeah. The Rex Manchester's and the Ronnie Mussons and the Bill Muncies and the Bill Browse and uh, wow. and uh, Leif Borgeson later on and and Bill Shoemaker and so on. Uh, so what uh, we have Russell Wilson back then, it was yeah, the, the boat yeah. drivers. Right. Yeah, Bill right. Muncy was was a Russell Wilson, so to speak. And uh, Bill went on to win uh, 60 races, 61 races. As a matter of fact, Chip Hanauer retired at 60 because Bill Muncy had been his mentor, and he would not be the one to break his buddy's mm. record. Mm. So Dave Vilwalk went ahead and did it later because Vilwalk held no allegiance to you know to Bill Muncy. But. You you mentioned that Jimi Hendrix was a big hydroplane fan, uh, hydroboat hydro fan. Um, did he know these guys, these pilots? Was he hanging out with them or? Oh no, uh, he was too young. Too young. Okay, <clears throat> but okay. but but Jimmy would build little model hydroplanes. No way. There's pictures of them somewhere on the web of the little hydroplanes that he carved out of wood, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. cool. You see, you see, Jimi Hendrix was all Seattle. Right. Jimmy was never this crazy, like, Grateful Dead-ish or that kind of, uh, of musical lunacy. Uh, no, J Jimmy was just a down-to-earth Seattle guy that just was wired in such a way that he could draw things from a guitar that no one else could conceive of drawing. Mm. Yeah. Given also uh, an ear for perfect cordiology and mm -hmm. so on. Tell you a story about Jimmy. So, and it's important that this be straight. Jimmy did not die of a drug overdose, okay? Uh, Jimmy was not a big druggie. Uh, Jimmy smoked a little weed before he went on. But uh, Jimmy did like to drink, and uh, what happened was that Jimmy uh, was out at dinner that night with Monica, came back to his place, and Jimmy always had sleeping problems. Mm -hmm. God, he had trouble getting to sleep at night, so he would take sleeping pills. 
He got back and uh, took his sleeping pills, went to sleep. Monica was sleeping in the other room, and in the night, he started to vomit. He was he got sick and started to choke, but he was in that deep sleep, and he only made it halfway to the bedroom, or the bathroom, rather, when he collapsed. And that's why Jimmy passed away. Hmm. It was uh, something that could happen to anyone. Yeah. So anyway, this is kind of interesting. Jimmy had two managers, Chaz Chandler and, and Jeffries, in London, personal managers. And so Jimmy has passed away, and we're all saddened, and we were working on setting up the next tour. And I got a call, let's see, it was three days after the death. I got a call from Jimmy's dad, Al, and he's Pat. He said, "What? what's going on with Jimmy? What? What? What, what are the plans? What's the... I said, haven't you heard anything? He said, I haven't heard a word. I said, well, we'll check it out. So we started calling. We discovered that Chandler and Jeffries had blown town, had vanished, and the body was still at the morgue. So I called the record company and uh, said, listen, Jimmy's body's still at the morgue. What are you guys doing? Aren't you on top of that? And he said, well, you know, we've got some problems. We've got some litigation going on over royalties and so on, and mm. we've been advised by our counsel just to keep an arm's length right now. I said, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> so we went over to London, sent our guy Tom Yield to London, and we claimed the body, uh, bought the coffin, the coffin and, uh, and uh, flew Jimmy back to Seattle, uh, we bought the gravesite out at Renton and paid for the funeral. Uh, and uh, all of those that had made trillions, <laughs> or not trillions, but had made millions and millions of dollars, just did a vanishing act. Jimmy and I were good friends. I respected him, and, uh, and uh, he respected radio, and he respected me. He was a big hydroplane fan. Oh, really? Which leads me to another story. Okay, go for There's it. There's a tie between that and my doing the first hydroplane race ever. It's uh, again, and strangely, this is a, this happens in Dallas. I was there, and I got a phone call. You see, at that time, Channel Four, Five, and Seven in 1967 and 68, they did all three of them did Seafair Live. Later, Seafair put it up for bids for income's sake, and one of them would get the exclusive. But at that time, all three covered the race. And Seafair had been going for a few years prior to this, Oh, yeah, Seafair had been rolling since the early 50s. But uh, Seafair was giant, and it was great for all three stations to cover it, the hydroplane race. Uh, I get a call from Wally Baker, who was the sales manager of Channel 13, and uh, he called the auditorium, and the auditorium came forward and got me and I went to the office and while he was on the phone he said Pat he said all three stations four five and seven have gone on their engineers have gone on strike and he says channel 13 is going to go and broadcast the race on Sunday now this is Friday night right or excuse me this is Saturday night and he said they're going to go do the race and he said so we're going to do it. Would you be able to come back and do the play-by-play? I said, why me? You know, because I wasn't a sport. Well, he knew that, first of all, I had like a 40 share in radio at the time, right? You know, they said, okay, there could be maybe a little bit of magic there. 
And I say that with all humility, but that's how they perceived it. So uh, I went and talked to Jimmy because I was supposed to go to uh, El Paso or somewhere with him the next night. And Jimmy says, oh, you got to do it because Jimmy loved the hydros. And so I said, okay. So I got the red eye out of Dallas after the show that night on Braniff and flew back to Seattle and landed and this guy picked me up at the airport from Channel 13. We're driving down to the to the pits, and I said, now who else do I have on the team with me? He's well, Pat, he said, we haven't found anyone. It's just you at the moment. I said, wait a minute. I haven't even done television before, and you got a seven-hour telecast coming here, just me? He says, well, maybe we can find somebody to help. I said, yeah, we... Well, Wayne Newton had played a concert for Seafair uh, Friday night at the arena. The Vegas performer, Wayne Newton. Yeah, oh yeah, the Wayne Newton, the okay. Shane Wayne Newton. Okay. And Wayne and I had had lunch on Friday before I left for Dallas to meet Jimmy. And so I knew Wayne was at the Edgewater because they were staying over for the parade on Saturday night and so on. So I called Wayne and I said, Wayne, I said, you know, I said, you're just marginal as a singer, but I've got a career opportunity for you <laughs> that can make a big difference. Uh, he said, well, what is it, Pat? I said, you can become a hydroplane color announcer, right? Oh, and I told him, he's Pat, I paid for lunch. I said, yeah, but I was the first guy in America to play that stiff So Long Lucy for you. So anyway, he came down and... He was my color man, but he had to catch a plane back to Vegas at about 3.30. So he was on with me from about 11 a.m. till 3. And then after that, I winged it myself for three hours because wow. it ran late that year because there was a big accident, a uh, big boat accident okay. with a couple of the drivers got hurt. And so anyway, how did Is, I get to that? Well, we're well, talking about Hendrix and hydroplanes. Yeah. And, well, you're talking about Seafair, though, and you're yeah. bringing up something interesting. And that is at a time when it was so essential to Seattle, mm -hmm. and at a time when where it's no longer maybe essential, it's losing its momentum. As mm -hmm. you said, well, you go to see the Blue Angels, right? Well, that is typical of the sport itself. It isn't just seafair in Seattle. When Bill Doner, who owned, used to own SIR and so on, when he was commissioner, uh, we had 12 races. There was Lewiston, Texas, there was Kansas City, there was Honolulu, uh, along with Detroit and uh, and Madison and Evansville and, you know, a dozen races. Now this year, there are five. Mm. Why? Because, and I'm as much a part of the fall as anyone, uh, it was Jim Clapp, the former Clapp of the Warehouser Clapp family, and I that developed the first turbine-powered hydroplane. So was that quieter? You know, uh, they were quiet. For the first time, you heard what a propeller sounded like in the water, right? When you take the noise away from racing, is like taking the amplifiers away from a rock festival at the Gorge. Mm. I'm sorry, that's a noise-oriented thing that brings excitement. When your chest pounds and throbs with noise, huge noise, it triggers those emotions and it triggers excitement. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, if Indy went silent, if NASCAR went silent, mm -hmm. 
their crowds would disappear as well. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's and true. that's what has hurt unlimited hydroplane racing okay. big time. So what what do you think needs to happen to get the to pistons back? Get them back? Oh, absolutely. All right. You can develop pistons now. You know, they're going to be eco all... eco friendly pistons. You think? Oh yeah, they can be as friendly as you want. <laughs> Maybe you can get one that burns coal. There you go. Uh, anyway. Uh, that's the, that's what's hurt unlimited hydroplane racing. Also, uh, <clears throat> nobody understands a turbine. People don't understand what is powering it. You know, here's this hair dryer running down the lake, right, with a bunch of spray behind it. You know, they don't understand it. Pistons, they under, motors, they understand. Yeah, that's true. So, and also the sport has failed miserably in developing exciting drivers. Mm. Really has. There's some young guys coming along now, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, in 19, later on, the sport was declining in attendance, and I decided I should do something. So I figured if I can introduce the first lady driver to the sport, it will boost attendance, and it did. So in 1981, I took my boat. I owned radio station then, KYYX. I built, had a hydro, the Miss KYYX, driven by Brenda Jones. And she ran that year. And in 1982, record crowds on the shores in Detroit, the front page of the Detroit Free Press. The day of, on Sunday morning, I was leaving the airport, headed for the race course, grabbed the paper. My God, there's my driver, full color, top to bottom, standing on the bow of my boat on the front page, you know. And... Uh, and uh, after that year, I sold the boat, and I thought the next owner would rehire her. Mm -hmm. They didn't. And so she remains the first and only lady driver of an unlimited hydroplane. Brenda Jones. And, you know, you'd, you'd think they were smart enough to see what Danica Patrick has mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. You know, what Lady Chacha Muldowney did for, for drag racing, you know. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, a mm -hmm. lady driver would help bring people to the shore. It's true. But yeah. uh, dumb is as dumb does, and uh, <laughs> so there we are. Well, okay, so let's let's get into a couple of stories. Um, what are what are some of your favorite stories? Which I know, I know you have you have a book of it was all just rock and roll, right? Um, and there's some really great stories in there. But what are what are some of your favorite stories of uh, celebrities and just different people that you've come across in in your years? Oh my goodness. There are so many. Uh, trying to think of a couple that would really entertain your audience when they hear them. Uh, some funny little ones. Uh, extravagance. Uh, we did the first Elvis uh, satellite round the world concert. Uh, the Aloha concert from Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, it was a two-night deal. This is your company, right? Your, yeah, this is Concerts West. Concerts West, okay. We should go back. I'll tell you how Concerts West came about. Okay. But uh, the first night, uh, the band, everybody was so excited back at the hotel after the show. But there was a level of, of, uh, of gloom because the guys had looked all over the island and they couldn't find any White Castle burgers. <laughs> and you know, if you're from the southeast, you're from the south. You need some White Castle. You yeah. need White Castle right. burgers. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally. Oh, you so are. Well, then you you understand. Oh, I know. That. I know a good White Castle burger. Yeah. 
Elvis felt badly that because uh, the guys had worked hard. So uh, you know, do you remember the airplane, the Lisa Marie? Mm -hmm. That was a uh, Convair 770, uh, a regular giant four-engine passenger plane that was later beat out by Boeing 707 and so mm -hmm. on. But Elvis had one. It was his crew plane. So the Lisa Marie, the Convair, flew to St. Louis and picked up a box of White Castle burgers and flew them back to Hawaii. Wow. <laughs> that is so good. Now that's, uh, how much is that per burger? Yeah. I don't know. Right. It sounds like an Elvis thing right there. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, oh, there were great stories. Uh, Led Zeppelin was uh, uh, 30 days on the road with Led Zeppelin is a lot different than 30 days at vacation Bible school. I, I would say so. Uh, they're, they're not similar. <laughs> uh, yet there was another side to them with all the wildness. You see, we had them stay in only three places, the Edgewater, Seattle, and uh, the Whitehall in Chicago and Houston. And the reason we did that is that they could get in a lot of trouble, and they also attracted a lot of trouble. Right. And this way, we hired the police in each of those cities and put them on the payroll to come and just protect them from themselves <laughs> while they were. So we would, uh, so we had a Boeing 707, the Starship, and we would fly that from Seattle to all the concerts in the West and then back here at night. And the same thing out of Houston for the South and out of Chicago for the East. Was that was the Edgewater a strategic location because it was on the water? So like you have one side water and then the other side. The Edgewater uh, became the rock and roll headquarters for every right. entertainer in right, town. Right, because the Beatles stayed there. It all started. Yeah. Well, it all started when I started putting uh, uh, the rock acts I'd bring to town there in 1962. Gotcha. And uh, we'd had uh, for the World's Fair opening, we had done the World's Fair opening twist party at the Orpheum Theater, which is where the Westin now stands. And we had Chubby Checker and Joey D and the Starlighters and Dee Dee Sharp and, and uh, so on. And they stayed at the Edgewater, and that started every Roy Orbison and Jerry Lee Lewis and Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and on and on. Every, everybody has stayed at the Edgewater. Yeah, that's true. Boy, is that place famous. It is, yeah. Uh, let me tell you about Zeppelin and the Edgewater. You see, John Bonham and Peter Grant. Peter Grant was their manager and then John Bonham of course the late John Bonham the drummer and they would get on the outside of a lot of coke and a lot of Jack they like Jack Daniels too and and when sufficiently fueled up they were uh, unpredictable they were volatile they were funny they were mean mm -hmm. oh it was everything it was uh, just a your whole variety of uh, responses and moods. And so Bonham resented his room because he said that his television was an old TV and that his bed was uncomfortable. <clears throat> so that day as they're checking out, he chucked everything in his room over the rail and into Elliott <laughs> Bay. And, uh, you know, he made his statement, right? It's all in the bay, everything, right? Couldn't tear up the carpet, but other than that, it all went in the bay. Now, the next time they are there, uh, he has convinced the guys that their furnishings are ugly, too. So he went to each room and coached everybody, 
and they chucked everything from their rooms into the bay. Okay, so concerts was we write the check to the Edgewater, right? <laughs> they get us the damage bill, send it over to the office in Melville, and we pay for the damages. <clears throat> it was about the fifth time that they're there. <clears throat> when I told them, I said, guys, I said, you, you got to understand something. I said, do you ever notice they put you in different rooms every time you're there? Yeah. I said, has it occurred to you that you are paying to refurnish the Edgewater? <laughs> I mean, get it through your head. You re are refurnishing the whole, whole hotel for them. Oh, God damn them. Oh, come on, you know. <laughs> Led Zeppelin, the interior designers is yeah. what that so is. So you're yeah. responsible for getting them from the hotel to the concert in a state where they can perform? Is that your role? Our role was everything from... Uh, uh, planning the tour, renting the tour, renting the buildings, buying the insurance, uh, buying the advertising, uh, hiring the security, uh, hiring the stage, absolutely everything. All the act had to do when they worked with Concerts West was to show up with their instruments and perform. We took care of everything. Wow. And uh, that was our role. That's why the company grew so fast. No one had ever done that before. But uh, Led Zeppelin, let's see, Led Zeppelin was crazy. Uh, if it wasn't one thing, it was another, and yet there was another side to them. One afternoon, I took them on my boat, and we went over to Blake Island and uh, had a picnic and walked around Blake Island on the shore and just talked and visited. And it was one day that I was dealing with totally normal guys. Mm. And, and they were talking to each other. They got to talking to each other about some of their extreme behaviors and why. And that was a, a wonderful day because the showbiz thing was off. Mm. And they were themselves that day. Mm. And uh, deep inside. Of course, John Paul Jones is always a gentleman. There was nothing crazy about him. He'd just sit back and watch the whole deal and... Packed the money in his wallet. Uh, and Jimmy Page was semi-normal, and so was Plant. But Bonham, Bonham and Peter Grant were out of control. Wow. And uh, Man. Three Dog Night was another one of the acts that we handled. I forgot to mention them. It's kind of sad, you know, losing Corey Wells and Jimmy Greenspoon. And mm -hmm. That's kind of the heart of the group. But uh, they were huge for years, you know. Uh, did you ever work with Johnny Cash? I'm a big Cash fan, just being from Nashville. Uh, just one, just one show did with Johnny. Nice guy. Yeah, nice, wonderful human being. Yeah, so I grew up water skiing right around where his lake house was that burned down. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but I, you, you broke a Guinness Book of World Records for yeah. water skiing. Yeah, <laughs> is that still held to this day? Yeah, I think so. I water skied uh, nonstop on one on a slalom so a ski slalom ski okay for four hours and 58 minutes around mercer what? island round and round and round and round what what went into it and was there training involved or were you just i just did it you just did it just did it i had always water skied right okay you know i loved to ski but uh, just did it and, wow uh, then then i set the uh <clears throat> indoor go-kart driving record okay and uh, there was an indoor go-kart track back way before they became vogue 
uh, in Georgetown, and uh, I drove a go-kart for 23 hours, but I passed out and was taken to the hospital uh, because <laughs> that building wasn't very well vented, and uh, the carbon monoxide had gotten to me. That makes and, sense. Uh, yeah. Were you, like, passing by grabbing water bottles, or, like, how, how yeah, did that even? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. And uh, had them turn the lights off. So I could slow down and pee in a bottle. No way. And turn the lights back yeah. on. <laughs> That's a, is that something that they're just like, okay, it's Pato Day. We're going to let him do this. Like, Well, they, they, it was great publicity yeah, for the course. place, right? Of course. So, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, man. Anything for ink, right? Anything right. for notoriety. Right. So looking at uh, Seattle and just how it's grown, right? You've been here uh, your entire life, right? Um what do you what do you think like what are your greatest concerns what are your greatest uh hopes for the city as we continue to become kind of this you know mini silicon valley well i'm i fear uh losing the texture and the warmth mm. of the city uh because the many of the people that run the city who say we want to unite yet everything they do is divisive. Everything they do is divisive. Their own little agenda, right? And they say they're uniting and they're full of crap. And that's from the mayor right on down. Uh, and uh, uh, I hate to see that city that that uh, was the foundation of Boeing. And, and you know, it's something interesting. Uh, why Seattle is is, the cre is one of those creative capitals like Silicon Valley. I mean, you look at our innovations. Uh, you look at Boeing. You look at Amazon. You look at Starbucks. You look at Peterbilt. You look at Costco. You look at Nordstrom's. Uh, you look at Amazon. You, you know, unbelievable the creations that are coming out of this community. Why? Well, because I think it's the people that settle here. Uh, and in the West, you see, they are people, they are descendants of those that grew up maybe in Philadelphia or Buffalo or uh, Detroit or uh, uh, Chicago. And way back, somebody had the courage to go way out West, mm -hmm. you know, to go out West and start a new life and so on. Well, that's a genetic characteristic. Uh, that doesn't come from reading books or training. No, that's gen in your genes. Yeah, you got the courage to go west and try new things. And so our area is populated with those that carry their genes of their parents and forebears that are willing to try and create and develop new things. And uh, and that's that's the foundation of Seattle and will continue to be. But in the meantime, the city that once was so dedicated to uh, Boeing and uh, to its people and so loved itself, wrapped its arms around itself, is uh, is becoming angry. Mm. You know, is becoming angry. And uh, uh, everybody's trying to tell us what we have to do. Mm. You know, you got to ride bikes. Oh, bullshit. I don't want to ride a bike to work. Well, you, you ride a bike. We're going to take half the freeway and make them bike lanes, you know. Uh, that that kind of thing is ruining the spirit of Seattle. Yeah. Because we are free thinkers. We don't need to be told to ride a bike. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a long, long list of those things. Yeah. Uh, I am terribly opposed to the legalization of marijuana, to tell you the truth. 
not because of adults can suck weed and do whatever they damn please, but it's going to have an impact on kids. Yeah. It is so easy to carry it. It is so easy to sneak it. It's in candies and this and that and the other thing. And I think it's we're so avant-garde, right, that we've legalized marijuana. You know, no, it's, it's suicidal if you give a damn about the youth, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just drink all you want. You don't, you don't need weed to be successful and be happy. We have loved hearing your, your stories from the past. We also want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you're up to now. So we know you have a real estate business up in the San Juans, and you're also involved with an organization down here in the Seattle area too. So we just would love to hear all about that. Well, uh, to keep myself busy, uh, because, you know, I'm only 82. I don't want to be retiring yet. So uh, I'm the premier property director for Windermere up on Salmon Island and and uh, stay busy doing that. My wife's the uh, leading land use attorney up there in the county, so we manage to keep ourselves in trouble all the time with those two things. And then uh, the love of my life, if you will, from a standpoint of challenges, is Shikshadal Hospital which, by the way, according to the New England Journal of Medicine and the medical journals, is the most successful treatment for alcohol and drugs in the entire United States. Uh, and it's totally different. It's 180 degrees different than, than the treatments that have, that have overpowered everybody's, overpowered the industry and led everybody to believe they're the answer. Because those other treatments, the 30-day rehabs and all of that, only are dealing with the conscious portion of the human brain. And Dr. Shadle said the conscious portion of the brain doesn't have the horsepower to halt the habit. Mm. You can threaten, you can punish people, promise they've got to quit, their wife says they'll divorce them, they want to stop, they mean to stop, but something happens and they're right back into it again because the craving overcomes their common sense. So Shadle developed the way, what the hospital does right now is it goes to the most powerful part of the human brain, the midbrain, the subconscious, where our real horsepower is in our skull, and uh, uses the midbrain to halt the habit and effectively. We are running over 80% long-term sober to never have another drink. That's amazing. And you went through Shikshadal as a patient in the 80s? In 80, well, it was 30 years ago on May 5th. That's great. Well, it's been a joy, so thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. And I'm delighted to be part of it. Yeah, yeah, and thank you so much for it. Well, I hope hope it's been entertaining. Rice Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. Special thanks to Bravery Music for intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all the show notes and episodes on our website, riseseattlepodcast.com. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at TheRiseSeattle and use the hashtag RiseSeattle. You can subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Wyoming, Wisconsin, West Virginia, Washington, Virginia, Vermont, Utah, Texas, Tennessee, South Dakota, South Carolina, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Oregon, Oklahoma, Ohio, and so I can, you know, what do you can do with that? It's worth nothing, but right, it's right. good, good drill for the memory. Grows that's right. Yeah, that's great.